If you have a Bible, can you open it up to 1 Peter chapter 4? 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the idea of joy today. And if you don't have a Bible you've brought, we've got some probably close to you. If you look into those chairs, we'll be on page... No, I lost my place. Page... I think it was 961? No, it's 1016. Page 1016 in the Black Bibles. It's 1 Peter 4. We're going to be verses 12 through 19 today. And there's a common theme in the New Testament about joy being something that happens uh, in the context of suffering, right? And so that's really where the rub is for us, is joy would be easy if everything was perfect, right? It wouldn't be something we had to work at if life was just easy and perfect all the time. But the New Testament addresses this issue and says, we are supposed to rejoice. That is something we're supposed to do in spite of the reality that we live in a world of sin, death, broken relationships, pain, frustration, work not going well, relationships not going well, that's the world we live in, and yet the New Testament calls on us to rejoice. And so this text is another one of those texts, there's a lot of them in the New Testament, that'll help us to think about what does that look like, to have joy even though other things are going terribly wrong in our life. And I want to dispel the the kind of false idea that's taught a lot of times in church that joy is not really happiness, right? Um, That's a helpful distinction to make sometimes because sometimes we think about it this way. I think I even have taught this in years past, that happiness is that kind of temporary circumstantial smiling kind of you're happy with your circumstances, but joy is the deep spiritual internal idea. Have you all ever heard that distinction made before? Raise your hand if you've heard that distinction made. Okay. Um, That distinction is made a lot. It's not really, it doesn't really line up with what the Bible says, though, is the problem. It's, I mean, it's a helpful way for us to categorize. I I don't want to totally beat it up. It's it's helpful to think about it in those terms, you know, kind of circumstantial happiness and deeper abiding happiness. But really, the words are kind of the same. The words are basically the same thing. And so what God is saying is there's a kind of happiness that you have in moments, and there's a, a kind of happiness you can have in the midst of a lot of things falling apart. And we're commanded to have the happiness in the times when things are falling apart. That should come out. It should look like something. Joy is something that comes out of us. We should express it. So we are commanded to rejoice even though everything's not perfect. Now, the New Testament also commands us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, right? So we're not to be fake plastic people that pretend everything is okay all the time, but we are to rejoice even in difficulty. So that's what Peter is going to attack here Uh, We'll read verses 12 through 19 and uh, ask God to help us figure this out together. Uh, Verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
that's a call we're to entrust ourselves to him, we're to rejoice in him, even though things are going terribly wrong in this world. This world is falling apart, it's, it's broken, but we're still to rejoice in God and what he's done in us and through us and around us. Let me pray and ask God to teach us more here. God, we ask that you would help us to understand you, that you would uh, send your spirit. We thank you that you're a God that has shown that you love us and you prove that through Jesus giving his life for us. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would open our minds, help us to be open to who you are and what you have to say, and that you would help us to rejoice, help us to have real joy in this life, even while we grieve, Lord, over brokenness and injustice and pain. We also pray that you teach us to, to have joy, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a, a very joyous celebration that goes around some communities on June 19th. Does anybody know the holiday, June 19th? Raise your hand if you're familiar with the holiday. There's a ho- just a few of you. Okay, there's a holiday on June 19th. Many African Americans celebrate on June 19th. It's called Juneteenth. Have you ever heard that before? It's Juneteenth, and it's a celebration of their freedom from slavery in Texas. And this uh, celebration has now spread to other states just because of, uh, you know, migration and things that have happened over the years. But it started in Texas, and what that is celebrating is on June. 19th, a general arrived on the shores of Galveston, right on the shores of Texas, and declared that the the slaves were free. But Abraham Lincoln actually signed that freedom to take effect on January 1st, two years before that. And there's this big gap there between the celebration of that joy and the reality of when it was put into effect. And I think it's a perfect illustration of how we live now in this time between the times, right? Our, our freedom was actually put into effect 2,000 years ago. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, to give us his own life so that we wouldn't have to be ashamed, but we could stand before God as his dearly loved child. He, he loves us. He adopts us. We are his. But that celebration often doesn't begin until we hear the proclamation of it for the first time. Then we begin to celebrate it. And what Peter is saying is continue that tradition of celebrating the freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. Celebrating the freedom from your slavery to sin. Celebrating the new life that Jesus gives you because of his suffering that took place for you. Enjoy Jesus faced that suffering for us, the gospel tells us. And so then when we are living in this world of suffering and decay, and brokenness, we can have joy, and we can have the same mindset of Christ. We can suffer along with him, uh, sharing in his sufferings, it says here in our text. Let's look at verse 12 and 13. It sets up kind of where we're going this morning with the idea of joy in the midst of suffering. In verse 12, it says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, first of all, don't be surprised, expect it. Jesus said it this way in John 16. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said elsewhere, pick up your cross and follow me. It's clear that there will be suffering in this world. There's many different ways that this suffering is described in the New Testament. In 1 John, he talks about uh, the darkness passing away, right? This present age is is decaying. Many other passages in the New New Testament talk about We're living in the last days, right? This era is crumbling. It is under judgment. The era of a rebellious creation is winding down. 
So we live in this world still of brokenness and pain and sickness and death because of sin, but we live also rejoicing, looking forward to it all being made right. We look forward to Jesus' full glory being revealed, us seeing him face to face, there being no more tears or pain or crying or suffering. That's, that's what we're walking towards. So we rejoice now, looking back on what was put into effect 2,000 years ago, but also we rejoice now looking forward to its full effect, right? The African-Americans on Juneteenth started celebrating, but they didn't see the full effects of that freedom until years later, right? That came in stages and stages and stages, and now we live amidst still brokenness and pain, but we look forward to a day when it's all going to be fixed. Everything is going to be made right. And so we rejoice now looking back on what he put into effect and looking forward to seeing the full fruit of it, everything being okay. No more sickness, no more pain. Everything's made right. He describes it this way in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's the tension. We share in Christ's suffering. We walk with Jesus. Jesus entered this broken world and became broken for it. We do that. We recapitulate that in our own life. We walk in brokenness. We offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. We hurt along with others for the sake of others like Jesus did. We share in his sufferings as we deliver that proclamation of what he's done to our friends and neighbors as we show and tell about who Jesus is in the world. So we're sharing that with others and we're sharing in his sufferings along the way, looking forward to his glory being revealed, looking forward to it being complete. It's all going to be wrapped up. It's all going to be made right. And so that's the tension we live with. We, we rejoice, but we rejoice like Jesus did, rejoicing facing the cross. We rejoice like Jesus did, facing his own demise, but seeing a fuller joy to come through that. So as we waste away, as we suffer, as we struggle, as our life crumbles, as things fall apart, we can either recognize this is for Jesus, this is with Jesus, this is like Jesus, I want to follow him and I want to do what Jesus did, Jesus purchased my life, I want to share that same love with other people, or we can suffer for our own sake, for our own selfishness, fighting and scrapping and doing whatever we can to hold on with our claws to whatever little piece of life we have in the here and now. The New Testament says the world's going to be a lot better place if you let go of the little scraps you have now and you fight for other people's joy. You give up yourself and you follow Jesus. He's sharing his stuff. The, the first way that this is described as Peter's going through this joy in the midst of suffering is joy is suffering for Christ's name. It's not for our name, it's for Christ's name. Joy is suffering for Christ's name. Look at verse 14. He says it this way in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. The New Testament describes that when, when we're sinning, we're, we're taking hold of life for ourselves apart from God. We're saying, I must have this. This is the way I'm going to find life. I'm going to break God's commandments. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to tell him that I'm going to be God, and I'll find more life on my own. And what Peter is arguing is, you're going to suffer either way in this life. Better to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. Better to suffer in his name. Better to suffer like him than to suffer for your own selfishness. So, so it's just a matter of choosing which kind of suffering we're going to endure, which kind of suffering we're going to pursue. Are we going to suffer 
on the path of pursuing his kingdom, so we're going to suffer. Or are we going to suffer pursuing our own selfishness? <coughs> Peter says, don't be surprised and don't suffer for yourself. Suffer for the name of Christ. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're happy because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying it's even a mark. That, that shows God's glory in your life. The way Paul talks about it in Corinthians is we're jars of clay so that uh, the, the glory can be revealed in us, right? Like we're, we're broken, we're temporary, we're earthen vessels, but his glory overflows through us. There's something very temporal, very weak, very small about our life, but his glory shines through that. And Peter is reiterating that same concept here. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Don't suffer for being selfish. Don't suffer for fighting and scrapping as orphans for your own survival. Suffer as an adopted son and daughter that knows your love but is willing to suffer for the love of others. That's the, that's the difference. I have a picture here of a little kid eyeing some cookies in a cookie jar. I was thinking just the idea of, of don't suffer because your hand got caught in the cookie jar, right? Don't suffer because you're stealing. I had the word here, thief, right? Don't suffer because you're scrapping and fighting and taking what doesn't belong to you. Don't suffer because you're killing others to bring yourself life. Don't suffer because you're taking others to give yourself something to eat or something to make you comfortable. Don't suffer because you see yourself as an orphan, but suffer because you know that you're adopted, that you belong to him, and that it's worth it. You're headed somewhere better. You're following Jesus. You're going to walk in the footsteps of your big brother, Jesus. Joy is suffering for Christ's name. I like what he does here. He gives the negative examples, and he, he reflects something that happens a lot of other lists in the, in the New Testament when he gives negative examples of sin, right? He does this thing where he, he gives kind of big negative examples, murderer, thief, evildoer, right? So most of you would say, hey, all right, I'm, I'm not doing that. And then he says meddler or a meddler. Paul does this a lot in his lists of sin, right? He'll say, you know, don't do this horrible sin, you know, sexual immorality or murder or adultery, and divisiveness or backbiting or selfishness. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. That's not fair, right? He, he lumps together the religious sins and the irreligious sins. He lumps together the obvious cultural sins and he lumps together the secret religious sins that we think are okay, right? Because what we want to do as religious people is we want to say, yeah, immorality is wrong, murder is wrong, but greed and gluttony, those are good, right? I mean, those are okay. They're not as bad as those other bad people over there. But the Bible again and again says, all sin is sin. All sin is sin. And all sin is us taking joy in our own selfishness and us taking joy, like Adam and Eve, taking joy in the fruit without the giver of the gifts. Taking joy in, I'll I'll be my own God. I'm not going to listen to what God had to say. That's what sin is, is us taking joy in the here and now and the temporary situation and what we can do to make it work instead of trusting Him. So He says, You're not going to find joy that way. You're going to suffer either way, but you're going to find real joy when you suffer for Christ's name instead of suffering for your own name. The next thing that he shows us is that joy is suffering for God's glory. And I think this is really another way of saying the same thing he just said. If you look at verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So the contrast here is between our own shame, 
our own, I feel like a loser, I feel stupid, I feel powerless, I feel impotent, whatever that is in your own life that causes you shame, accusation, words of worthlessness that you hear in your own mind or from other people, we have the choice of that shame or we have the choice of glorifying God. He says, which, which is it going to be? Glorifying God, the idea of glorifying Him is the idea of, of showing how great He is, uh, magnifying Him, some people might say, uh, but you can think of magnifying like I'm making Him bigger. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you're making Him bigger, it's just you're showing how big He is. Right? It, it means glory, especially in the Old Testament, had this connotation of weight, heaviness, substantialness. And so it's showing how big and heavy and awesome and good and deep and right the Lord is. That's what it means to glorify him. It means reflecting who he is. In Genesis, it says our job as people is to reflect the image of God. We're to show the world what God is like. We have a, we have a unique place in creation. As human beings, we're made in the image of God. That image is cracked and twisted by our own sin. But we are to trust in Christ to forgive us for that sin and empower us to reflect him properly, show glory to him. An illustration I like to use of glorifying God is the moon. I have a picture here of a bright moon in the night. You know, if you're outside um, and it's a full moon and there's no clouds, you can see pretty well, right? There's a lot of light produced by a full moon, but it's not really produced by the moon, right? I'm, I'm no astronomer, but from what I understand, the moon has no light of its own. It's not glow-in-the-dark, it's just basically a big mirror, you know, I mean, it's just reflecting the light of the sun to us, this greater light, the sun, the light that, that burns us, right, if you live here, um, this powerful light of the sun, it's, it's just reflected off the moon. We're, we're to reflect the beauty, the glory of God. We're to image Him in the world, and, and that can bring a lot of light into the dark places that we live, the dark places that we walk. And Peter says here that that's, that's a real way to find joy in suffering, is by continually pointing back to God, continually showing people Him, not making it about yourself. Are you fixated, distracted, hung up on your own shame? Or are you able to point people back to God? And in the broader context of what Peter is saying in this book, he says the answer to our shame is the gospel is who God is, how he's revealed himself to us through Jesus. So instead of being stuck in our shame because, you know, the respect that we want isn't there, or the family that we want isn't there, or the love that we want isn't there, or the care that we want isn't there, or the attention that we want isn't there, whatever it is in your life that drives those feelings of shame, the gospel answers that and says, God gives you what you need in Christ. Your shame and your sin and your brokenness is forgiven and taken away. And he gives us Christ's righteousness. We're robed in his righteousness. We're hidden in him. We're, we're in union with Christ by being unified with him, by being adopted into him. God delights in us. He's pleased with us. He looks down on us through Christ and he says, I love you. I'm pleased with you. I'm happy with you. No more shame. And so that... That transaction, that twist, that change can only take place through the gospel. Because as long as your glory is in yourself, you're just one step away, you're just one bad day away from shame again. But if you're done with shame through the gospel, then you can really glorify God. And you can really point to Him. 
you can really reflect him and his power and his weight. The last thing that I want us to look at is that joy can be found in the midst of suffering by trusting the creator, by trusting the creator. This is a little broader section here and a little more complicated. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail, but I kind of want to set up a general contrast that they have because basically what Peter's been doing is he's just been showing a lot of contrasts, right? Joy in this instead of in that. Do this instead of that. Do this instead of that. And I think he's kind of got the same contrast going here in verse 17. He says it this way, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He goes on, verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And what I would set up here is that there's, there's kind of two ways to live your life. You can live your life entrusting yourself to the faithful creator, or you can live your life trying to be the judge yourself. And what he's saying here, Peter is saying, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. If, if you go back and read through Acts, when the apostles were first preaching the gospel in these new places, a big theme of what they were preaching is that God's appointed one man to judge the world. It's Jesus. He rose from the dead. He's coming back to judge the living and the, and the dead. And now the good news, that's the bad news, right? The good news is he died for your sins. He loves you. He gave himself for you. The bad news is judgment is coming. Judgment is falling upon the earth. And we see a taste of it now. Again, this world is passing away. It is the last days. And the last days in the New Testament doesn't mean Jesus is coming in an hour. It means this age is falling apart. It's dying. We're looking forward to the new creation. Jesus promised it's coming. And our path to that new creation is through him. So this world is under judgment. And Peter's saying judgment starts with the household of God. Judgment is here. It's beginning already. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Saying if, if we can't escape judgment, how can those who don't know Jesus escape judgment? Judgment's happening. It's happening. And so you have two options, to rebel against the judge or to entrust yourself to him. This word uh, trust says, therefore, in verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Those things go together. As you're entrusting yourself to Jesus, you're going to do good. You're going to do what he asks you to do instead of doing your own thing. And this word entrust is interesting because often in the New Testament, there's this word that occurs again and again, faith and belief. Those are the same Greek word in the New Testament. Faith and belief occur multiple times throughout the New Testament. I, I would usually translate those as trust. I think trust is a great way to Communicate those words. Common word, faith, means to trust God and what he's done for you through Jesus. But here it's a different word, and it's, it's a word that connotates more kind of like laying your life out before someone, kind of putting yourself out there, laying your cards on the table, laying your life on the altar, giving yourself up into somebody else's care, saying, all right, here you go. That, that's kind of the word here. Entrusting yourself to him. Like giving up. I can't do it. I trust you to be just and I trust you to be merciful. I have a picture of a judge with a gavel because all of this judgment language drives us towards the stern picture of a judge saying, you've sinned, right? And as a Christian, you have to recognize that we are under judgment. We have sinned. We all have sinned. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3. It's very clear biblically. 
but Jesus took that judgment for us. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of theology debate going on right now in this thing called the New Perspective on Paul. And one of their critiques is that this, this idea of the courtroom is too limiting, right? This illustration of the courtroom where the judge forgives you, declares you just, right? Justification and righteousness. That's too limiting because a lot of times then what we do is we add to that illustration and we say, he not only declares us forgiven and just, but then he gives us Jesus' righteousness, right? And then he adopts us and the judge comes down and he pulls us into his family and then Jesus is our brother and the Holy Spirit lives in it, you know, and you add all these layers to this illustration. And what I would say is the reason we do that is because the New Testament does that kind of thing. The New Testament mixes these metaphors. We've got the courtroom judgment. We're under judgment, but we're forgiven and, and we're adopted and our debts are canceled and someone filled up our bank account with Jesus's money right? I mean, the New Testament just layers illustration upon illustration upon illustration. I was thinking about, you know, there's these little experiences we have that give us a taste of, of what truth and beauty is like. I, I played football growing up when I was a kid, and so I think an illustration of truth and beauty, great sport. I love, I love football, right? But we never got to hit a ball with a stick in football. Wouldn't it be great if they could somehow mix that in, right? I never played baseball. I never played golf, but Everybody loves hitting a ball with a stick, you know? Wouldn't it be great if we can combine those? In our human experience, sometimes we don't have the full scope of what all these things could be combined together. And I, again, go back to the idea of judgment. Judgment is a very limited picture there. The gospel says not only did Jesus take our judgment, not only did the judge declare us free, not only did the judge declare us innocent, not only did he then become our father and adopt us into our, his family and then delight in us and love us, and Zephaniah 3 says he delights over us with singing. Not only did uh, Jesus take care of us as his older brother, not only did our older brother give us his robe of righteousness, not only did he pay our debts and fill our bank account, he, he did all of these things for us because he loves us. The gospel is, is multi-layered. It, it's endless in understanding how much he loves us, and so we rejoice now in trusting ourselves to him, saying, okay, he's got this. I see what he did for me through Jesus, so even though my life right now is harder than it's ever been, I'm going to trust him. Even though right now I'm dying, I'm going to trust him. Even though right now the relationships that matter most to me have just dissolved, I'm going to trust him. Even though the money is gone, I'm going to trust him. And he calls us to entrust ourselves to him as the faithful creator, the one that made all things and the one that is rebuilding what is dissolving right now before our very eyes. We look forward to the new creation, all things being made right. No more tears, no more pain, no more crying. I want to conclude by looking at verses 12 and 13 again, because, again, I think this is kind of a summary concept here, and then compare that to Philippians 3, because I think Paul does a similar thing in Philippians 3 to what he does in our first two verses. So let me read our first two verses again. Verses 12 and 13 say, Beloved... Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. So don't be surprised. It's this idea of like a stranger coming into your room or a stranger showing up on your doorstep. Expect it. Expect it like, like a friend. Expect it like someone you know that you think is going to be there. Hard things are going to happen. Expect difficulty to come. doesn't mean we enjoy difficulty. The, the Bible is clear that death and disease and brokenness is not the way things are supposed to be. But this age is not completely gone yet. We still live in this age, a part of what God is doing, extending 
the hope and the proclamation of that future age in the here and now. So the future perfection is breaking into the here and now of brokenness and pain. So expect more brokenness and pain here and now, even while we rejoice looking forward to it all being resolved. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So again, arm yourself with this attitude that I'm, I'm sharing in what Jesus was about. Jesus was about giving himself up for us. And now as his baby brother, as his baby sister, I'm about giving myself up for others. So I'm no longer like an orphan holding on, clinging on to my little scraps of life. I'm, I'm giving those up and I'm willing to suffer for others, for the joy of others. So I can rejoice in the here and now, even when things are broken, even when things are not right. And if you flip over to Philippians 3, Paul reiterates the same concept. It's on page 981 in the Black Bibles, Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Paul has just been sharing his resume and how many great things he's accomplished in his life, and he's saying it's worthless. It's worthless. My joy is not in the things I've accomplished. My joy is in God and what he's accomplished for me. So let me read that in. Uh, Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is a controversial uh, verse because if you read it in Greek, there would be a cuss word there, right? So we try to clean it up so as to not offend you and we, we make it sound you know, a little more easy there, rubbish, which... Rubbish. We don't even use the word rubbish in America, do we? Isn't that like a British word? Um, so anyway, he says, I count them as rubbish, but, you know, insert gross cuss word there. I count them all as rubbish. It's, it's worthless, right? It's junk. Everything I've accomplished on my own, it's, it's junk. What I count, what I value is Jesus and what he's accomplished for me. And so that is how Paul is able to live in this world of brokenness and pain and suffering like Christ and actually have joy in the midst of that. He says in verse 9, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, it's actually a joy to share in the sufferings of Christ. Repeated theme throughout Philippians is our joy is, is shining like lights in the darkness because the joy we have in Christ. He says here, I, I actually get to experience the power of the resurrection as I see this life wasting away. As the, as the happiness we have in the here and now is stripped away, all we can do is take joy in Him and the future that we're looking forward to. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that You would make us into the kinds of people that have a radical, supernatural joy. God, I pray that it wouldn't be a fake joy, it wouldn't be plasticky, that we would weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, that we would be honest, that we would grieve injustice and pain, but that we would also have a real joy in You and what You're accomplishing for us and through us. We thank you that Jesus gave himself for us. Help us to live our lives for his sake. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.